Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource that is produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. We all know that marriage can be difficult under uh, just about any circumstance, but when we add a child with special needs or a child at all, period, it adds a whole new level of challenges uh, to the marriage. Today, I, I really have the, the privilege of talking with Steve Demi who has a real passion for helping to build strong marriages, but in particular, wants to offer help and hope to fathers, and even more specifically to fathers of children with special needs. Now, Steve and his wife, Sandra, have been married since 1979. They have been blessed with four sons, three lovely daughters-in-law, three special children, grandchildren, I should say, and their fourth son, John, has uh, Down syndrome and lives with them in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Steve has served in full or part-time pastoral ministry for a number of years after graduating from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he has served on the board of Johnny and Friends Eastern Pennsylvania, and he is the creator of Matthew C. and the founder of Building Faith Families. Now, Steve, you have a long list of credentials but I bet that at the top of the list is your marriage to Sandra and parenting those children. I want to thank you for your willingness to share your story here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And the reason I have such a long list is because I'm so old. Uh, well, as we're recording this, today is my 70th birthday. I never thought I'd see 70, but here I am. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Well, why don't we start by you telling us about your, your family and the work of Building Faith Families. Our family started soon after we got married because uh, Isaac was born within the first year and then followed with Ethan and then Joseph and then John. And it wasn't very long into my journey as a, I don't know how you'd call it, a Christian worker because I've done different things. I've been a youth leader and I've led summer camps and I seem like I've spent a lot of time working with young people. But what you quickly discover, especially when you get older and you look back, is that you can you can support the home, but you can't supplant it. You can't replace mom and dad. And God designed the family, and that and a family is two believing parents. And hopefully, we're raising up our children to follow, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the family is the basic, fundamental bedrock, basic building block of our culture. And if you have strong families, you'll have a healthy church. If you have healthy churches, you have a healthy culture, but it really goes back to the relationship first between each individual and God, and then their relationship with each other. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. I know that your situation in, in your home is a, a little bit different than most people. So I, I want to actually ask you to, to, to take us back to the birth of your son and how you reacted when you were told, or when you knew, when you first discovered that he had Down syndrome? For me personally, we never had any, we didn't have any inclination that Johnny was going to have any disability. And I was in there with the baby in the birthing center. And as the midwife was delivering John, she started noticing some different characteristics than our other boys. And so she called a pediatrician to confirm what she suspected that he had Down syndrome. So this was the first time we'd ever even thought about this was when he was already our baby. And when when the midwife told my wife, she looked on the wall. We were at a Mennonite uh, midwife center, and she looked on the wall, and there was a scripture 
and it was Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life. And her first thought was, I can raise this child to love God and to live forever, which was always our primary goal with our other boys. The main thing that we want to do is raise our kids to live forever in the presence of Jesus. So as far as my own thoughts, I don't think I was thinking a lot. I don't think I was an ostrich, but I was kind of numb. And in hindsight, now that I've learned more about the uh, different stages of grief, that's one of the stages is you just become numb. And it wasn't like I walked away, but I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know anybody else that had a child with a disability. And this thought had never occurred to us. And so I didn't do a lot of reflecting. I'm just learning to reflect in the last five years. I was always busy and I was always on the go and I was always uh, doing new projects. And so I was present, but I wasn't really present. One thing that comes out loud and clear in just about every interview I've heard of with you is you have a really close relationship with your son. Was it always that way? No. With Johnny, at uh, six months, we discovered that he was probably going to have heart surgery. So we had a catheterization. Eight months, we went into the hospital. I had the evening shift one night. And that little boy was hooked up to tubes, and he just looked pale. He only gained a pound the whole first year. And I put him on my chest, and I was just lying there with him. And he looked up at me. I'm tearing up. And all I could think of was, this little guy needs me. And that's when I started bonding with my son. Because uh, that, that little guy, I, I tell people he's a combination of Tiny Tim and Peter Pan. Because even though he's 30, he never really grows up. And there's a part of him, like the tiny Tim part, that engenders something because he needs me. He needs, he, needs, he needs his pop. And so that's when we bonded. I know you say oftentimes that you look forward to being with him. He's, he's an adult now. He's, what, 30 years old. You say that you look forward to when you guys are together after he comes home from work. Tell us about some of the ways you enjoy your relationship being with Johnny. Well, last night we were watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Well, this started about 15 years ago. He decided we we're going to watch. We didn't have a television very much when we were homeschooling our other boys. And at some point we started buying seasons of them on DVD because Johnny enjoyed them. And so we started watching two episodes a night. But Johnny doesn't just watch a video. It's interactive. And one of the reasons we didn't have television was because we thought it was passive. You know, you just kind of sit there and drool and watch the screen. But so Johnny last night was watching one of these episodes and he was dancing and he was running around the room and he was singing along. And, and Sandy and I just look at ourselves and we just totally enjoyed the experience because <laughs> I don't know who else gets to enjoy Johnny. And then we went upstairs and we play cards. We often play a couple hands of cards before he goes to bed. And and both Sandy and I weren't doing too well. And uh, Sandy says, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. And Johnny said, nope, <laughs> because he doesn't like losing. He thinks he wins every game he plays. We're still trying to work on breaking that. But <laughs> so I just enjoy him. And when I take him to work, you know, it's hard to get him to be on task at the beginning because he's a social creature like his father. So he he has to run around the office and say hi to everybody and 
and people give him graphs. He loves to see graphs. They print out graphs for him of sales or whatever. And then he talks to Howie because Howie likes sports. And last night we watched a couple basketball games on television. And he's just really fun to be with. He just he loves people. He loves life. And um, there's no guile. It, there's you know there's no filters. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. I, I know from my nearly 50 years of pastoral experience that marriage is difficult. Most marriages have certain points at which they struggle, not the least of which is when children are added to the mix. Suddenly, a young couple that only had each other to deal with now have a third component in the home that is a child, maybe two children or three children. So I'm going to ask you, how did your son's birth challenge your marriage? Well, it really didn't because I think it actually drew us together. It's kind of given us a common focus because we need both components. I mean, he needs a mom. There's certain things that Sandy supplies with her big mom heart. And there's certain things that a pop supplies. And there are certain areas that I think that's God's design, that he, you know, that every child needs a mother and a father. But as a, as a Christian, I think some, I, well, I'm surmising. So for me personally, I just thought all things are of God. And this baby is now a part of our life. And, and God's going to redeem this situation. And God's going to redeem his life. And, and, uh, He's taught us so many things that are important and that are eternal and, and the lessons we've learned. But it's, you know, it, I think if you put all your eggs in the basket that uh, this is like the old Schlitz beer commercial, which people don't even know what it is, but it says, you know, you only go around once in life, grab for all the gusto. Well, if that's my mantra and my life goal is to grab for all the gusto, then he's going to, he's going to be uh, impinging on that. He's going <laughs> to, he's going to be crimping my style, so to speak. And I can see why, if that's what I was living for, I might want to walk away because, man, he's, he's going to slow me down. But if I'm living for, for Christ and I'm living for his kingdom, and this is only a blip on the screen of eternity, and it's different. I have an eternal perspective. And so I, I can see why people would walk away. But for us, uh, no. And it really, it really was an asset to our, our family. Let me dig a little bit deeper into the weeds here on this on this subject and ask you, in your experience, whenever you go and you speak or you talk to different groups and what have you, do men generally enter into the process of raising a child with special needs? I've seen the whole gamut. Once we had a child with Downs, then we started being asked to go visit other families who had just had a baby with Downs or just heard that they were going to have a baby with Downs. and. I, I, I see the lady just holding the baby, just smiling, and and there's, there's a little bit of a disappointment, sure, but there's also a big nurturing heart because this is her baby, and she's carried this child for nine months, and it seems like there's a bonding that takes place between the mom and the baby. But the man, I often see the men, I, I can still visualize this one fellow, and I could just see that, that that grin was just a fake grin. He didn't know what to do. He, he was checking out, and... It, but then the other day, when I say the other day, I, that could be anything. My kids, you know, tease me anything less than ten years. But this was just this was just a few months ago. I had a long road trip, and I had just gotten an email from someone said, you know, somebody just gave us your talk that you have on raising your child with a disability, and would you have any time to talk to us? And I did a joint phone call with husband and a wife, both on different extensions, and I could tell that that that, that guy was going to be a great dad. 
he was engaged. He was facing up to it. They were acknowledging stuff. And he was on board from the beginning. And I can think of another man. I, you know, I was out, I spoke at a conference in Illinois and I went back a year later and it was the same conference and a lady was pushing a carriage and I noticed that the child had downs and I just smiled and I said, now nah, you got a special child there. And she said, my husband heard you speak last year about your special son. And he so hopes that he'll have the same relationship with my, you know, our daughter as you have with your son. And so, yeah, those last two guys are, they're, they're way ahead of where I was. But the first guy was probably closer to where I was at the beginning because I didn't know what to do. This was uncharted territory. I really didn't. Well, I know men love to fix things. And I, rem I remember back when we lost our son, Mark, and his friend Kelly to the auto accident that my wife and I became two wounded soldiers trying to drag each other off the battlefield. And, and there were times when she was strong and I was weak. And there were times when just the reverse. We learned how to complement each other in the sense of holding each other's arms up when we, when we grew weary. And of course, that was driven by our faith in Christ and our commitment that before she's my wife, she's my sister. And uh, before I'm her husband, I'm her brother, and that there's a deeper relationship and a deeper connection that's there. And so, you know, as we talk about this a little bit more, what should a mother do when and if her husband detaches from his role with their child? Yeah, and that's for any child. That's, you know what I mean? If it's a single yeah. mom. And I, I, I just know that um, my wife has been really good where she'll sit down and she'll say, like, I can remember one thing where she was saying, you know, I think Johnny is taking in more than we realize. And I think he's smarter than we give him credit for. And another time she said, I think we need to start treating him like a man and not like a boy and start giving him more responsibility. And, you know, she was more tuned into those things than I was, but we did it and it made a big difference. And so, you know, when he talks, we look at him and let him finish. And we try not to interrupt him and complete his sentences. And but when she sat down with me and had these conversations, you know, I've learned to trust her intuition. Um, I think God gives a, a wife an intuition because he had multiple surgeries. He had after heart surgery, he had stomach surgery. And she said, something is still not right. And we went to the surgeon and he said, we've done all the tests and he's, he's still, he's fine. And I said, my wife hasn't been wrong. Test him again. And they found another problem, you know, and she knew. Because she was the one that was, you know, feeding him five or six times a day. And she just knew that that food wasn't digesting properly and there was a blockage. But the surgeons didn't know until they went back and checked it one more time. So I've learned to listen. So if, if a wife can nicely sit down with her husband and say, this boy needs you. This little girl needs a dad. And I'm doing the best I can, but I can't do it by myself. And, and the other thing that my wife has been... You know, I wish I had been the one that took the initiative, and I try to now, but she said, we need time, just the two of us. We started making time. This last weekend, we were gone for the whole weekend, and we had a lady that we pay his caregiver, and she comes and stays with Johnny, and they go bowling and have a big old time, but Sandy and I just need two time. We need to, we need to cultivate our marriage and our, our own relationship. We have to work at it. We have to be in... in uh, intentional about it. And she's the one that's picked up on that too. Yeah. What other, what are some of the other ways in which you and your wife protect your marriage? Well, I think that's probably a big one is some romantic time, but also we have a weekly communication time 
where we we talk. Now, this is not related to Johnny, but in 2012, I went through a, it was the hardest year of my life. And through that, I started seeing a therapist and we started learning how to communicate and even written a book on communication now because it's huge. But we don't want to just communicate when we're in deep waters or when we're struggling or when Pearl Harbor, you know, is coming. We want to communicate on a regular basis to keep keep connected and to learn to hear each other. So regular communication and and not and, and this is how I define communication. Communication is learning to hear the other person without framing a response. <laughs> yeah, it's not a contest. I, I'm not trying to change my wife. I'm just trying to understand her. And if she's just trying to understand me, we might still disagree at the end of the day, but we've both had a chance to hear each other and value each other and respect each other's position. You know, when you and I first talked and shared, you told us that 75% of children with disabilities will be abused. What What is it that makes children with disabilities so vulnerable? And, and real specifically, what steps can parents take to protect their children from this kind of abuse? What steps have you taken personally? I learned that from Jerry Borton, who was our connecting. You, know, you interviewed Jerry a few weeks ago, and then he recommended you know that we talk. But Jerry, Jerry has cerebral palsy, and he has been abused. And he told he's the one who told me that statistic. And when he told us that, we sat down with him. Sandy and I made an appointment, and we talked for about an hour, you know, about strategies and what what people should do. And it still hurts me. But my sister-in-law used to work in an elderly care home, and then she not an elderly care, but a home with disability adults. And the things that she saw there, I don't even want to share. It was it was appalling. There's some sick puppies out there, and it's because they're vulnerable. And Johnny believes the best in people, and it would be easy for somebody to lead them astray. So we're real careful. We don't we don't uh, we don't allow them to go with people unless we know the people. And even that's very rare. And and it was close because we found out that there was a couple in our church that wanted to take Johnny to their house when he was a little boy and do therapy with him because we had volunteers helping us at our home. And we didn't feel easy about it. We found out later that that, that man was an abuser. And I, I'm getting chills just telling you that because it's one of those thoughts I didn't want to bring up. But how could Johnny have told me? How He didn't he has trouble communicating now. How could he have told me? So we've tried to teach him some language that if somebody touches you and we taught him what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, we've taught them, we've done the best we can to prepare him if the situation was to arise, to holler, to get help, to run away and to talk to us. But we're so close to him that we could probably tell now if something happened to him, that he, he would probably shut down and we would have to, to dig a little bit. But yeah, we're very careful. But see, we were careful because my wife had been abused as a child. Johnny's, what, 30 years old right now? So do you ever envision a, a time when you will be an empty nester? How does this shape your planning for the future? My wife is the planner. I'm not sure what I'm doing after this phone call. So my my wife could tell you what she's doing for the next three months. But okay, so I have objectives and some things. But yeah, we don't plan on uh, taking Johnny to a home. We're, we're as long as we're in good health and can take care of him. Now, if something changed, and we'd be open to that. But we've already sat down with each of our boys and their wives. It's, you know, it's different. When they were younger, before they were married, we'd 
we set up a uh, a will who was going to take Johnny if something were to happen to Sandy and myself and how it was going to work. And we set up a trust fund and all that kind of stuff. But that was when they were unmarried. And so we just did it again within the last year. And we sat down, all four couples, and they assured us that if something were to happen to Sandy and myself today, that they would take care of them. And they've already signed the papers. And, and it does give me a peace of mind because that used to be a really hard thought for me. The thought of my son standing next to my casket because Johnny and I are so close. I'm tearing up just telling you that. But it used to be I couldn't even talk about it because I felt it so deeply. But I think Johnny's going to be fine. Uh, but see, what do people do who don't have a family like yours? I think they find someone that they can trust. I know of people that have been, you know, it might be a neighbor. It could be a distant relative that just connected with your child in a special way and they have a special relationship. But you pray and you find somebody because you've got to, you've got to face the fact that that boy is going to outlive me. Now, in the old days, they didn't. A lot of kids with Downs didn't. But Johnny had that heart surgery and he's healthy as a horse. And he's actually gifted because he listens to his body, too. When he's tired, he sleeps. When he's full, he quits eating. <laughs> you know, we just, we just drink coffee and take drugs and keep moving and uh, take Dayquil and keep working. And, and he doesn't. So he's real healthy. I think he's going to live a long time. So, yeah, people need to plan. Given given your schedule and your travel schedule and the times that you're away from your family and away from your home, how do you keep your your relationship to Christ fresh? Yeah, well, for me personally, I have been I've been reading my Bible since 1976 almost every day. You know, I miss an occasional day, but not very many. And reading my Bible and having my personal devotion, regardless of where I am, whether I'm on the road or anywhere. What was transformative in 2012 was, I really believe now, and I often ask people when I speak, how many people believe that God loves them? And if it's a Christian audience, most people will say yes, and they'll raise their hand and they'll smile. And then I say, how many of you believe that God likes you? And that's a whole different question. And I didn't really think that God liked me. And you know, and if you stop and think about it, why wouldn't God like me? It's because there's things I know about Steve that nobody else knows. And God knows those things. But you know what? It was a revelation to me in 2012. God does know me better than I know myself. And he still died for me with his eyes open. And I really believe with all my heart, God doesn't just love us. He likes us. He enjoys us. And I got scriptures to back up all these points, by the way. And I have to continue to read those scriptures, though, even five years later, because I still struggle. I want to renew my mind. I want my mind and my heart to be in sync here. And it takes time to overcome 40 years of thinking a certain way. But once it started dawning on me that he likes me, it was two more years. It was 2014 was the first time I just spent time in my dad's presence with no agenda, no prayer list, and I just let him love on me. I don't know how else to use that language. We just communed. And it went for about an hour. And I did it again the next day. And and now I go for walks. Because the Spirit kind of convicted me about two years ago or a year and a half. He said, you're really good on the truth. You're reading the Bible. But I need more time just with you. Spirit and truth. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. So I have what I call my daily walks with God. And I go for a walk. And even though it was 10 yesterday, I bundled up and went for a walk. Because 
that half hour just communing with my dad with no emails, nobody's texting me. I'm just walking usually at night or in the evening. That's what keeps my relationship fresh with God. Hearing you say that, I want to ask another question. And, and I, I don't know. I think I can pretty much tell what the answer is going to be, but let me give it a go anyhow. Are there ever dark moments for you where you say to God, why me? Nope. <laughs> I No, I, well, let me go back a little bit. When I first heard the gospel, all I heard were the perks. I heard the gospel at a Young Life Ranch in Colorado, and I heard that I could have my sins forgiven, I could have a clean start, I could know Jesus personally, and I thought, what part of this isn't good? No wonder they call it the good news. And then later I heard about peace and joy and perfect. And then I was living at the home of Elizabeth Elliott. You know that name? Oh, sure do. I was mm -hmm. one of her boarders in seminary. I didn't know who she was when I went to seminary, but I found out. And she had lost her first husband to a spear in Ecuador. Her second husband died of cancer. She'd been through the ringer. And I had already read two of her books that she'd written, Through Gates of Splendor and Shadow of the Almighty. And while I'm living in her home, I got a phone call from my dad. And he said, I just identified your brother's remains at the hospital. Well, I didn't become a Christian for suffering. I became a Christian to not suffer. I'd, I didn't, I had never reconciled suffering with the Christian faith. And she drove me to the airport and she said, God does not exempt us from suffering, but transforms us in it. And, and for the first time I saw that God doesn't eliminate valleys. He goes through the valleys with us. And that's what separates Christianity because I'm doing a study right now and I have titled it The Suffering Servant because it says in Isaiah, in all their affliction, talking about the children of Israel, he was afflicted. In the New Testament, Jesus wept. It's the same thought. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's a very present help in times of trouble. God weeps when we weep. And so when I was prepared in that sense because this was a difficult time having Johnny. I wouldn't call it a suffering time, but it was a valley experience. And and but never once did I shake my hand and say, Why me? I just started looking for God in, in one sense because I knew that he would help me. And I didn't I didn't lean on him as much as I did because I still have that man part of me that tries to figure things out myself until I get desperate. But every time I knelt and really poured out my heart to God, he met me. And so I I wasn't caught off guard by suffering this change of plan, so to speak. Now, I'm in a whole different place now. Now I know how to ask for help. I have a therapist. I know how to reflect. I know how to spend time just waiting on God. I know how to be still. None of those things that I know when I was younger. So there was a big part of me that was just putting one foot in front of the other and just hoping for the best. Well, you know, uh, I want you to imagine that there is a, a father sitting across the table from you right now who is kind of desperate for someone to help him process the news that he just received, uh, that his child has special needs. What, what specifically would you say to him? I'd say two things. God hasn't changed one bit. Your circumstances have, but your dad hadn't. But draw near to him. You know that song, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? All our sins and griefs to bear. 
What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Or all because we try to carry everything by ourselves <laughs> before prayer. So I would say lean hard on God. And I would say, and read through the Psalms. I lived in the Psalms for two years. And I liked the Psalms for two reasons. The first one was I identify with David. His life was not rosy. In fact, there's nobody in Scripture that has a rosy life. I don't know where people get the idea. I don't know where I got it. Just hopeful or whatever. But David went through it. And David went through the ringer. And But David also, he almost cursed. I mean, David was strong. He was, he was, he was full bore. And he would say, God, what's the deal? But yet he always ended up, nevertheless, you're God. He was raw with God, and, and I encourage guys to be raw with God and find some people that they can be raw with, because it says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens. And fortunately, when I went through the ringer in 2012, I had a bunch of guys that would call me regularly and say, how are you doing? And I'd say to them, do you want to know? Now, if there was any hesitation on the other end of the line, I would just say, I'm doing. But if they said yes, I told them, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I don't know which end is up. And some days I'd say, but I'm doing well. But thanks for asking. We need people. And oftentimes, ladies are more quick to get help from other ladies. And men aren't. We try to, you know, go in our man cave and work things out. I would find a group of men, I would at least one or two. I had a friend that I helped pass his last couple of years. He died of. MS and and he would we would call him three guys and now here's another point sometimes when people are really in the deep stuff one guy can't help you you need a team of people to help you and sometimes if I'm at your church let's say and I see someone going through it I don't have the energy to help them by myself but I might get three or four other guys and say let's take turns and that's what we did with this one friend so three of us I had Monday the other guy had Wednesday the other guy had Friday and we would call our friend Chris. And you know, Chris, sometimes he would just almost curse. And I would say, you're not going to shock me, pal. I've already been there, done that. <laughs> I said, go for it. And then he'd feel better. And just to get it off his chest. But we need other people. And we need people that have been through it a little bit. Because we, I might have been scared as a young believer if I'd have heard some <laughs> um, Christian. So get help. and you, and you And talk to your... Here's the other thing I would say, which I didn't do at all because I was still survive. I was in survival mode for the first two years of Johnny's birth. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't good. I just was in survival mode. And I, I wish now I had sat down with each of my sons and said, how are you doing? And all it would have taken would be a little boy to just crawl up into my lap and cry a little bit and says, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Or I just want to help Johnny. Or I don't understand. But to know that he's been heard and that his father's got his arms around him would have been huge to them. But I didn't do that because I just trying to keep Steve afloat. I felt like I was Humpty Dumpty. So I was pretty fragile and pretty vulnerable the first two years until finally I got to that point where, and this is one of my favorite scriptures now, it says in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. And I take that as a promise that if I'll cast my burden upon the Lord, he won't let me fall apart. 
There are treasures to be discovered in darkness. God has promised to store up for us treasures in secret places where he's doing something that we cannot see. Whenever we talk to, to people who are experiencing suffering, they always like to bring up Job. But Job did not have the book of Job to read. He did. He did not know the first chapter of Job, where there was something going on behind the scenes that he could not see, where there was a war over his over his relationship to to his Savior. And um, you know, you you resonate with me because in the first couple of years after we lost our son Mark, I really was sitting in darkness. I had I had no real help. No one really came forward to help me, and I did not seek anyone to come forward to help me. Until eventually I called a, uh, a pastor friend of mine who is now the president of uh, Westminster Seminary and uh, a guy who uh, is probably one of the brightest minds in my denomination. I asked him if he would be willing to listen to me sound off to him because my relationship to my Savior was fractured. I was struggling with understanding God's love and, and somehow justifying the fact that our son had been taken from us. And he listened, and he listened, and he listened. And he sat there uh, on several occasions and allowed me to pontificate about my theology and what I believe and how God has made a mistake here, et cetera, et cetera. It was a very, very dark place for me to be. And he would always bring me back to the Psalms and specifically those times when David questioned God, the early Psalms, especially when he raises his voice basically and says to God, I don't understand why you're letting my enemies prosper over me. I don't understand why you're, where are you? Why are you not here? Why are you not present? How come I cannot feel you? And he would he would raise those questions about God's system of justice, and but he would always end them with worship. He'd always end those psalms by breaking out into worship, some form of a doxology where he is praising God for being God. My friend taught me to do that. He he would consistently bring me back to the worship of God, and eventually help me to wade my way through the muddy waters and to emerge out of that real serious pit of darkness. Now, that it didn't end there. The struggle continues even to this day because something very precious has been taken from us. I know it's not going to be resolved until that day I see Christ face to face. Then and only then will it make sense. I want to encourage you in your ministry to continually speak to men's hearts about getting help, about finding that appropriate person, that, that appropriate friend or two friends or three friends that will be willing to uh, to grab a hold of you, give you a hug while you beat on their chest, because uh, we need that. I know I need that as a man, and, and uh, I am, I'm hearing you loud and clear as to what those couple of years look like for you. I, I didn't know how to get help. I didn't know where to go for help. And that's one of, that's one of the reasons we love Johnny and Friends, because you know, we go to these week-long retreats, and there's something for the men as well as something for the mom and something for the siblings. Because, you know, Scripture teaches us that when one member suffers, now we usually think of that as a church member of the body of Christ, but the smaller church is the family. And when the husband's struggling, everybody knows it. And when the wife is struggling, everybody knows it. And when the kids are struggling, and that's why I wish I had been more... um transparent to my own family at the time and just said, I'm hurting. I don't know what to do. Uh, pray for me. 
I can do that now, but I, I wasn't able to do that when I was younger. Yeah, I resonate with that as well. I, I remember telling my family on many occasions in those early years after we lost Mark that the hardest part for me is not just my personal grief of losing my son, but watching them hurt and knowing there wasn't much I could do to help them. And uh, sort of in a, in a, a passive way, uh, I disregarded my responsibility to help them. Because, you know, it, it was like Sharon, my wife and I would, would uh, tell each other, we really do feel like those two wounded soldiers who are trying to drag each other off the battlefield. And the strength to do that, uh, it has to be a twofold strength. Actually, it has to be a threefold strength. Uh, and when we, we sign our ministry in his grip, that's exactly what we're saying, that we are in the grip of God's grace. Uh, he is holding on to us even when we're not holding on to him, uh, holding us firmly in the grip of his grace. So one final word from you, one final thought from you. How can a person experience knowing this God you keep speaking of? I'd say two ways. The first one is you read about him in scripture. It, I, but when, but don't just read the Bible. The Bible is, it's different. It's not just letters on paper. And I remember when I was reading through Leviticus one day, and I wasn't looking forward to Leviticus, but I read the whole Bible every year. So I, I was in Leviticus chapter one. And before I started reading, I said, Lord, help me to see Jesus in a fresh way, because it says in the New Testament that all of scripture points to Jesus. So the first chapter, it starts talking about find the lamb, a pure lamb year old, without blemish. And I kind of smiled and said to God, I already knew that. I need something fresh. <laughs> and then and then I noticed for the first time, it says, and then when you offer your sacrifice, lay your hand upon the head. I thought you just gave the lamb to the priest and they did all the dirty work while you watched or walked away. But no, my hand is going to be on the head of the lamb as they're slaying it. And immediately I thought of Thomas, who had his put his hand on Jesus' side and put his hand on his and I started to tear up because I saw Jesus in Leviticus. So the Bible is a living book. So that's step number one. Step number two is spend time with him because he's alive and don't just read about it. And that's what's been transforming my, my personal life now is I really like my dad and I like spending time with him. And, and the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just believe it and hear other people talk about it, but experience it yourself. The difference between looking at a hamburger and eating a hamburger. So spending time in God's presence, and it's, it says, He that cometh to God shall be, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And even if he doesn't appear to me or you know communicate to me right away when I'm praying or going on my walk, I think, yeah, but I'm closer because I know that he's a rewarder of me seeking him. I'm not going to give up. And, and the, that's, that's the two, you know, main points. But here's the biggest point that I've learned this past couple of years. We know that God is good. We know that he loves us and likes us. We can read that and we're going to experience it if we spend time in his presence. So the, the signal from heaven is clear. God is wonderful. What is it that keeps us from receiving the signal on earth? It's our own stuff. It's our own baggage. And I sometimes will pray and say, Lord, what's keeping me from getting this? And then I start realizing as I pray and start digging and reflecting and asking God to search my heart, 
it's because maybe I'm thinking of God incorrectly. I like to think this last couple of years, I've been rebuilding a biblical God and not a God who was like my dad or like my first pastor or like my boss or like some other significant person in my life. You know, God, God is wonderful. And if he's not wonderful, it's not because there's nothing wrong with God. It's we, we have stuff. We got to work through our stuff and we got to let God. We've got pain. All of us have pain and we've got issues. And as we work through that, though, knowing that our dad really does love us, I start getting a clearer picture of God. And God, you know, seek the Lord while he may be found. And he is near to us. So seek him. At the darkest moment of my life, a couple of months after we lost our son, Mark, I was in the mountains of Idaho. I was sent on a, a short sabbatical by my church to allow me time to craft a vision for the church uh, in light of the, the pain we were going through and where, where we could see ourselves in the next few years, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we we're sitting up in the mountains, uh, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been where we overlooked the uh, Teton Mountains. Oh yeah, I was I was feeling really really sorry for myself. I was throwing one of the biggest pity parties I've ever thrown, just crying out to God and basically the same things I had been saying for a couple of months prior to that. Why me, Lord? Why me? Why me? And I opened my Bible to Job and he took me directly to Job 38. And in Job 38, God had been listening to Job ramble on and on and on prior to that and finally says to him uh job it's time for you to this is my paraphrase now to shut up and listen it's time for you to become a man and listen to what i have to say to you and then he goes on this uh, this divine rant uh where were you job when i fashioned the, the mountains and i'm looking at the mountains where were you, Job, when I put the hawk into the sky and I'm watching hawks fly in the valley? Where were you, Job, when? And he goes on and takes him on this nature tour, basically showing the transcendence of God, that how big God really is. And with each of those verses, I found myself shrinking lower and lower and lower, not in self-pity anymore, but in worship getting down to the place where I could actually have that aha moment and say, he's got my back. He really does have my back. The word is directly speaking to me, to my situation. I'm watching it unfold right in front of my very eyes where God is saying, I've listened to you. Now listen to me. And when you mentioned the fact that we need to stay in the word and get into the word and look for those treasures in the word, brother, you're speaking to my heart. And I hope you're speaking to the hearts of those who are listening. You, you make you make me think of a scripture in Psalms right now. I'm looking for it. Well, Psalm 56, 9, this I know that God is for me. I have had people ask me, do you think the reason you have a child with a disability is something that you did wrong? And, and I know people wrestle with that and if they're willing to admit it. And I don't at all because of Psalm 103, he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And no, if if God had dealt with us according to our sin, we'd all be dead. We, we've been in an age of grace since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. 
It didn't start. It didn't start in Matthew. It started in Genesis. So, I, yeah, I know that God's wonderful. And as far as I have a situation that I don't think is really that difficult compared to some of the families that I see at camp every summer. But at the same time, I don't see any pity parties there. These men just they say, "Hey, these are the cards I was dealt, and we're just going to trust God and keep pressing on." And I have some wonderful hero stories. If you want me to tell stories about some of these men who have adopted children with disability, three with their eyes open, and they've lived that way for thirty years and no complaining. They just have a, a spirit of rejoicing, and that's God's grace. Amen. We are blessed by the fact that Sharon's brother, who is a an ordained minister in the Church of God, he and his wife have adopted. I think they're up to fourteen now. Children, children that nobody else wants, children that nobody else can care for. These are extreme situations of special needs. When I talk to this man and his wife, I sit there and I, I just shake my head and say, "What a testimony you are to God's faithfulness." And he continually says the same thing over and over again: God has blessed us with these children. In ways we did not deserve, and so I just I want to thank you, brother. You have been a real inspiration to me. Your ministry is called、uh, Building Faith Families. How can people access Building Faith Families? Well, you can go to buildingfaithfamilies.org. No spaces. I have a monthly newsletter they can sign up for, which I don't give to anybody else. You know the list, and I have a podcast I do weekly, and.、Um, You know, one of the biggest things John taught me is unconditional love. He doesn't know whether I can speak, write books, talk. All he knows is I'm his pop, and he loves me for who I am and not for what I do. And I'm trying to learn how to love other people the same way that Johnny has loved me. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources. Call us toll free at eight seven seven Mark Inc. That's eight seven seven six two seven five four six two. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.